0: Turning Tides is an Antics Entertainment affiliate. You can find us on social media at The Turning Tides Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and at Turning Tides Pod on Twitter. For more information, or if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, please contact us at Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Warning, this episode of Turning Tides contains graphic descriptions of violence, racism, murder, sexual assault, rape, war, and suicide.
1: Below the Mason-Dixon line, tumult and disorder characterized the working relationship between employee and employer. This touched all industries and all careers, whether it be textile workers in North Carolina, World War I veterans in Washington, D.C., or fed-up mine workers in Kentucky. In all three instances, violence, race-baiting, and manipulation were used by Southern bosses to attempt to break up these movements. The rest of the South was run by apartheid Democrats. They controlled the law and their constituents so effectively that the South was essentially a one-party state. Their economic policies were left of center, but they were, first and foremost, white supremacists. They claimed the title proudly, and this superiority complex made them incredibly bold legislators and lawmakers. The South's congressmen were practically encased in office, having served many decades They were rewarded with lucrative privileges and seats on powerful congressional boards, which decided numerous rules and procedures for the rest of Congress. This turned the solid South into true kingmakers. Their support could make or break any effective reform, and any reform enacted would be worded so as not to offend the peculiar institutions of the South. This entrenchment of lawmakers and economic elites turned the South into a truly backward place, both culturally and economically. Jim Crow laws ran the show. Black people were treated horrifically, while still duly being counted in the electoral colleges when election time came, which only further bolstered Southern hegemony and political power. Economically, The South had a third the population of America, but produced only one-sixth of the tax income. Poverty abounded. It was the norm. The rich were the privileged few, placed there because of their family name or inherited social status. It's little wonder that in such a climate authorities reacted harshly to increasingly multiracial labor agitation. These bold Union thrusts into the Deep South were headed mainly by American communists, battered from years of forced deportation and government crackdown, but not out of the fight for social justice. The tenacity of these fearless American communists were met by an equally fearless reactionary response. The best example of reactionary violence is the death of Ella May Wiggins. She was a mother of nine. She had moved to Gastonia, North Carolina in 1926 and had found work at a local sewing mill. For 12 hours a day, six days a week, she earned $9. When she was at work, she had to put her faith in neighbors to watch after her large brood of nine children. After a time, her children became sick with a whooping cough. She begged her boss to transfer her to the day shift so she could be with her children at night when their attacks were especially dangerous. Her boss refused, and Ella May Wiggins said, quote, I had to quit, and then there wasn't no money for medicine, and they just died, unquote. She lost four children to a preventable disease because her soulless boss refused her basic human decency. Ella May joined the National Textile Workers' Union, one of many unions headed by communists. Rapidly, she became a force in organizing, and she championed the rights of black union members when she argued passionately for an integrated union. In mid-September 1929, Ella May was being driven to a local union meeting with a group of friends. They were met by an armed reactionary mob and had their car turned away. After driving five miles, a second car came speeding up to their jalopy. Out of the car, armed men came shooting. The driver of her car rapidly sped away, but not before a pregnant Ella May was struck in the chest with a rifle round and killed. Her surviving five children were sent away to an orphanage, and the trauma Ella May's death had on the striking textile workers was sudden and profound. The strike collapsed, and the mill workers were put back to work. In Washington, D.C., 17,000 World War I veterans and 26,000 of their supporters were encamped outside the Capitol building. They were demanding the bonus, which Congress had authorized for them early. They said they were suffering and unable to make ends meet in the country for which they fought and watched friends die. The situation was threatening to become violent, and the thought of Washington being besieged by war veterans was simply ghastly for authorities. Congress attempted to satiate the marchers' demands, and the Wright-Patman bonus bill passed the House of Representatives relatively easily. However, once it got to the Senate, it met serious opposition and had very little support. It lost by a lopsided margin of 62 to 18, A month of anxiety passed before violence resulted in murder. Herbert Hoover, doing his best Donald J. Trump impersonation, ordered the relatively peaceful occupiers cleared. The veterans, prodded by law enforcement and state officials, started a riot. Douglas MacArthur was authorized to clear the rioters, and under the command of George S. Patton, over 1,000 U.S. infantry and cavalry cleared Washington, D.C. of their former comrades. In total, two World War I veterans were killed by police, while at least 55 others were injured. Northeast of Knoxville, Tennessee, nestled in the rugged mountain terrain of southern Kentucky, lies Harlan County. It seemed that in this modern world... Harlan was a place still lost in time. Mules and horses were the main mode of transportation, and the road consisted of creek beds and weather-worn animal paths. No one had money. People would barter and trade goods for services rendered. G.C. Jones grew up in this world. He started work as a nine-year-old on the wagon train, importing goods from, quote, over the mountain, unquote, into Harlan. This included baked goods, honey hams, and more frequently, moonshine. The ban on alcohol had been a blessing for enterprising individuals who were not afraid to go above the law, and many made a killing on the illegal trade, at least for as long as it lasted. As more and more coal was being mined in the nearby hills, Harlan became a veritable boom town, and the usual problems of the company town and the company store reared their heads. Amongst the individualistic miners, the union seemed an odd fit at first, and the government hoped ingrained hatred of unionism in the South was enough to dissuade miners from joining the UMWA, or the United Mine Workers of America headed by the outspoken John L. Lewis. As the Great Depression began to affect Kentucky's coal mines, operators deemed a 10% pay cut was necessary to keep the business running. On top of the operating costs miners incurred, this pay cut would leave those employed with almost nothing. Thousands struck in 1931 to preserve their meager wages and tonnage rates. Sheriff J. H. Blair was completely in the pocket of the coal executives, and his reign of terror on the pro-union citizenry of Harlan was brazen and barbaric. Florence Reese recalled, J. H. Blair and his men came to our house in search of Sam, that's my husband. He was one of the union leaders. I was home alone with our seven children. They ransacked the whole house, and they kept watch outside, waiting to shoot Sam down when he came back, unquote. Thankfully, Sam did not return home that night, and the sheriff and his men departed, leaving Florence shaken but unharmed. As a form of retaliation, she wrote a song, which has now become famous. Which side are you on? sets a vivid scene right away, quote, They say in Harlan County, There are no neutrals there. Either you're a union man, or a thug for J.H. Blair. The song ends emphatically Don't scab for the bosses, don't listen to their lies, 'Cause poor folks haven't got a chance unless we organize.' G.C. Jones recounts similar treatment in his book, Growing Up Hard in Harlan County. Quote, These men would get a few days of briefing and then in pairs would be sent to coal camps to beat and pistol-whip miners if they refused to work in the mines the deputies were hired by the hundreds by the new sheriff then the mine owners would move them into a nice big company house and give them a new fast car Unquote. Greased up and convinced they were going after red Russians, the deputies began a true purge of Unionists. Jones continues, quote, "'One would dash to the rear of the house. The other, rushing to the front, would crash the flimsy door in. The woman would start pleading for them not to hurt her husband, that she would get him to go back to work in the mines, or that they would leave the camp. The other camp boss would be guarding the rear of the house.' If the husband or father should attempt to escape through the rear, he would be blasted with shots from the guard's shotgun, Claiming they were stopping a break-in, deputies were never questioned or charged with any of these murders, the number of which still remains unknown. In this climate, it's little wonder miners began arming themselves and taking to the hills in marauding bands for protection. The mine owners seemingly had much to fear by the end of bloody Harlan. Five mine officials, guards, and deputies would be dead, killed by armed minor bullets. Things took a turn for the worst when Kentucky's governor called in federal troops. G.C. Jones says, quote, that if the women refused their sexual advances or reported the men to their commanding officer, they would have deputies take their fathers or husbands for a ride over the mountain on a one-way trip, Those forced into work down in the mines eventually found out about these abuses and rapes, and they rightly rebelled. In spite of their often violent resistance, their initial attempts at union recognition were rebuked by Big Cole. With the passage of several key bills in Washington... Organizing became much more effective, and yellow dog contracts were outlawed across America. In Harlan County, these reforms were resisted bitterly by coal operators. The unionists rallied around several key members of the Harlan community. One of them was G.C. Jones, who relayed messages between miners and union officials. Local mine owner, Mr. Burnett, spoke directly with Jones about what could happen if the miners refused to return to work. He claimed John Lewis would use union dues to support industry in Soviet Russia. Jones responded, quote, We intend to stay on a peaceful strike as long as it takes for you and others like you to recognize their employees and sign a contract that will be drawn up with them and our parent union, unquote. Jones then demanded an end to the reign of terror of hired thugs, an end to all scab work, and a dollar a day to all the men on strike from the company as a gesture of goodwill. Jones then offered to allow a team of union men to work pumps so as to keep the mines from overflowing, and he left. For a time, the big coal mines in the area seemed about to break, but more money and influence was injected into their counteroffensive, Bringing in motorized federal infantry to quell riotous miners, this unit set about initiating martial law in Harlan County once more. One night, armed men came for Jones. Five heavily armed men burst through the front door, while another four slipped around the back in wait. Jones awoke to a sawed-off double-barrel shotgun, several submachine guns and a pistol pointing at his face. They dragged him into a Buick and dropped him off by the bookkeeper's office. Once here, he was presented with, quote, a sheet of blank paper and a pencil. The captain then handed me another sheet with a message on it. He told me to read it good and then print it on the other page, word for word. I shook my head and asked, What in the hell are you trying to do to me? "'If you intend to take me over the mountain, you might as well get started, "'for I am not going to print this note, "'and I'm sure as hell not going to sign my name to any damn thing.'" He was lambasted by all present, save the captain. They called him a goddamn Russian redneck and a Union bastard. A guard went to hit Jones over the back of the head, but the captain called his dogs off saying quote, "you know you can't do this with all these people around take him back home and wait for another chance" unquote. returning home to a petrified wife he looked across the street to a near identical scene playing out a longtime friend was being crammed into a car by force all the while union men were going deep undercover Being hired as guards and gathering incriminating evidence. Even some state military officers were on the side of the Union and testified against the coal operators who employed them. They presented evidence of the company's wrongdoing to sympathetic congressmen in Washington. Many of the armed thugs were fired, the sheriff was removed from office, and some operators even faced criminal charges. In all, it was a supreme victory for Harlan County coal miners. G.C. Jones went on to serve in the Merchant Marine Force at the height of World War II and took part in naval battles off the coast of Cherbourg, France, and Antwerp, Belgium. Labor animosity would not cease in Harlan County. In the 1970s, miners once again struck for union representation. After a third Month long work action, they voted overwhelmingly for a union. Today, the coal industry in Harlan County employs fewer than 400 non union miners, where once tens of thousands toiled under the earth. In recent years, the decline in the mining industry has led to a decreasing population, fewer economic opportunities, and poverty across Harlan County. Many miners are unemployed due to the government's response to climate change affecting the industry. This is not without cause. Coal releases more carbon dioxide into the air than any other fossil fuel. With that in mind, I think the first people who should be considered for green energy jobs should be those who lost work due to the ineptitude of those in charge, were unwilling to change before it was too late. These miners worked for so long in dangerous, unhealthy, and dirty conditions, and now have less than nothing to show for it. The situation was so bad that in 2019, miners and their families blocked trains filled with coal, which had been removed from the ground using their unpaid labor. The only mining company in the area went bankrupt, but they kept delaying wages and making empty promises until they had no money to pay their workers. The union had long been purged from Kentucky. Not a single union miner remained, so no one could stand up for the miners who were being bamboozled. The police were ordered to clear the miners and their families from the tracks so their labor could be stolen by the government. This is unacceptable. And the meager restitution they were given by the new mining company was nothing compared to how much they lost in real wages doing unpaid work. Things had rapidly changed across the country. At the end of World War I, the country began to descend into the circumstances which would allow the Great Depression to take hold of America. America. The rapidity of the adjoining modernization left many people lost and astray. The car replaced the covered wagon, the airplane replaced the dirigible, and coal was replaced by oil. Another major change was happening in the halls of power. The population was overwhelmingly choosing Democrats to place in office. FDR's message of hope and change were what the people needed, He won a staggering 60% of the popular vote in 1932, in spite of attempts made by Herbert Hoover to castigate him as an authoritarian in disguise. Roosevelt said the country needed, quote, bold, persistent experimentation. If it fails, admit it frankly and try another. But above all, try something, unquote. This experimentation would push the boundaries and limits of a liberal democratic government. Already at that time, many were arguing for a more radical change. Some wanted communism. America's Communist Party reached its zenith with over 80,000 members at this time, while the far right was already in the midst of a resurgence. Luring fed up war veterans to the side of the Ku Klux Klan and other white supremacist and reactionary organizations. Either of these two forces could have easily destabilized the country, and for many localities they did. Born a pampered rich boy, Franklin Delano Roosevelt did not seem to be the man who would be lionized by the working classes of this country. However, two major life events changed his outlook in a serious way. First, he lost the election for vice president in 1920. This was rather shocking for Roosevelt, and it set his career back. Next, and most importantly, he contracted polio while on a visit to a Boy Scouts camp in upstate New York. He had never run a business nor worked a day in his life, but the loss of the use of his legs made FDR rethink his whole world view. He was always a Democrat, but FDR's new empathetic outlook propelled him to the governorship of New York. He pioneered unemployment benefits and other work-related programs, which laid the foundation for his national New Deal as president. FDR was not a socialist. In spite of whatever any of his detractors say, FDR believed entirely in the American system of government. He wanted to save America, even if he had to revolutionize American institutions to do it. He was supported legislatively by a Congress composed of the most bizarre political alliance in modern United States history. At that time, the Democratic Party consisted of many different opinions. Everyone supported a general left-of-center worldview, But who should enjoy these benefits remained an incredibly divisive issue. Southern Democrats, led by Klansman Theodore Bilbo, argued relentlessly that white people were somehow superior to black people. They demanded white supremacy. They made it difficult for other Democrats to voice their disgust for these policies. The Solid South, would stick together and vote against their own party when civil rights issues were brought to the floor. And in a lot of ways, it was the Southern Democrats who initiated the so-called party switch, which came to fruition under Lyndon Baines Johnson and his civil rights legislation. In spite of the pettiness of many Southern Democrats, they still attempted to work with their colleagues to pass the reforms FDR demanded of them, in general, they supported the party line, but when race became an issue, a camaraderie stopped. As more northern black people began voting for FDR, a clear fork was in the Democratic Party's road. Do they turn left and embrace racial integration as a party policy, or do they veer right and stick by the guns of the Old South and the 200-year-old Democratic tradition of racism? The fact that the pendulum began to swing in the former's favor boded ill-tidings for white supremacy as state policy in America. As war raged in Europe and Asia, the South seemed at war with itself, trying to come to terms with a party that wasn't theirs anymore. For his part, FDR abhorred racism and segregation, but he did not comment publicly on the increase in lynchings across America, fearing that if he provoked the South, he would lose the ability to truly change the economic foundations of the country. Regardless, his failure to stand up for black rights from the start is an irremovable stain on his presidential record, and showed he was really no different from those committing the harm— since he was not willing to say anything that would implore the vessels of violence and hatred to stop. Previous to FDR's presidency, there had already been some steps toward correcting the relationship between labor and capital. The most influential was the Norris-LaGuardia Act. This act finally removed federal courts from the equation in labor disputes, No longer could militia and National Guardsmen be called in to suppress worker rebellions with force by court order. Additionally, the Railway Labor Act of 1926 granted the right to organize to all America's rail workers. However, millions could still be fired from any number of industries if it was discovered these laborers belonged to a union. Frances Perkins was the first-ever female labor secretary. She worked closely with FDR on many key parts of the New Deal. She first became attuned to the need for collective bargaining when she visited steelworks in Homestead, Pennsylvania, home of the famous steel strike. She was denied the right to speak in public, not once, but twice, but she persisted claiming she had a right to speak wherever the American flag flew. She proceeded to lead an impromptu meeting of local workers in a post office lobby. She stated after the emotional meeting, I have come to the conclusion that the Department of Labor should be the Department for Labor and that we should render service to the working people." These ideas culminated in the Senate passing the National Industrial Recovery Act, or NIRA, which stipulated, among many things, the right for unions to bargain collectively and the beginning of public work programs. It was a game-changer for unions in America, and its effects were immediately apparent. William Green, president of the AFL, said about Section 7A, quote, from the standpoint of human welfare and economic freedom, there has been no legal instrument comparable with it since the Emancipation Proclamation. While well, the AFL Vice President John L. Lewis said, quote, President Roosevelt wants you to join the union. Unquote. Results staggered union leaders. Almost overnight, the AFL incorporated over 3,500 new locals and could boast a membership verging on $4 The future, they wrote, belonged to the workers. The decision to grant workers the right to collectively bargain was not made lightly. Indeed, there was every reason to be wary of labor elements in the United States. The aforementioned communist-run NTWU was one of many communist-run institutions. Communists in America targeted two groups above all others as possible members, black people and the unemployed. Black people were treated cruelly across the country. Even most labor unions would not allow black people in their ranks. Unemployed people, meanwhile, were in desperate abundance, and those with jobs made very little money and worked irregular hours the communists grew to be a powerful force for agitation in big cities like Detroit and New York. Regardless of what many of us might feel about communism as an ideology, there is no denying that these American communists were a force for good. It's largely thanks to American communists that black people and the unemployed became more publicly involved in labor rights and agitation. Philip Dre says these communists and their unemployed councils, quote, "...helped inspire a parallel cultural development, a surge of national feeling for old-stream patriotism and curiosity of the lives of common people." This crossover of cultures had many lasting effects. Black music and culture began to be celebrated and stolen, and literature focusing on the common man became a popular American genre. Grapes of Wrath, Waiting for Lefty, and The Iceman Cometh are but a few examples of excellent American penmanship. In 1934, this trend was realized in the legislature when Ernest Lundine introduced a bill which would guarantee unemployment insurance. The following year, the 7th World Congress of the Communist Internationale met in Moscow and created a popular front against fascism. This quote-unquote alliance consisted of hard-left Leninists, moderate socialists, and reformist liberals. The communists in America grew so powerful they were even invited to testify before Congress. They did not miss their opportunity to starkly state the misery of poverty and unemployment. Earl Browder said, The front-line trench today is the battle for preserving a measure of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in this country. It is the essential foundation for preservation of a measure of civil liberties, for resistance to fascism and war. It is a fight for all those good things in life which the masses of the people mean when they speak of Americanism. With the passage of Nira, relationships between employer and employee were promised to change. This did not stop bosses from attempting to circumvent the law and some of its more general language. Company unions were deemed the solution, these entities proved to be weak institutions, which rarely represented the majority of their workers. Additionally, these company unions effectively confused any negotiating process. Other employers turned to the courts to challenge what they believed was a quote, "...highly discriminatory law against their prerogatives." Unquote. These intentional misunderstandings of the law's true nature led to violence in several major cities across the country throughout 1934. In Toledo, Electric Autolite was a highly successful auto parts factory. Their success was largely due to the trimming of costs to maximize profits. A small AFL-associated union struck in April 1934 for union representation and an increase in wages. Few of the plant's workers struck in solidarity, but neighboring plants joined the few Autolite employees on the picket lines, bolstering the fledgling movement. More help arrived from the Lucan County Unemployed League, a communist-affiliated group. Local police were sympathetic to the strikers, as many of them were former union members. With this in mind, it's little wonder the plant operators turned to special deputies. These toughs and mercenaries were untrained and prone to escalatory violence. Almost immediately, an elder striker was beaten to the ground by a deputy in full view of the picket line. The enraged mob of workers surged forward... They even wheeled in a wagon load of bricks to be thrown as projectiles. The deputies and the scabs still inside the plant were in serious danger of being overwhelmed. Thrice the strikers rushed the factory grounds, fighting hand to hand with deputies and overturning cars. Ohio National Guardsmen were rushing to the scene. These guardsmen managed to extricate the trapped replacement workers, but in the process they became ensnared in the striker's siege. They tried to clear the way with their bayonets, but when this failed, they fired into the crowd, injuring dozens and killing two. Following this traumatic scene, operators of the plant shut its doors until they finally agreed to their workers' demands. They recognized the AFL local, increased wages, and rehired those fired for striking. In San Francisco, the ILA, or the International Longshoremen's Association, had been on the rise ever since the NIRA granted the right to collective bargaining. The Longshoremen's gripes were many, but their biggest issue was with the shape-up. Philip Dre says the shape-up was, quote, the early morning hiring call in which the foreman picked that day's workers, a method prone to bribery and corruption, This system denied workers steady employment and wages, while also creating bitter division amongst the longshoremen. The ILA attempted to right these wrongs under the leadership of immigrant Australian communist Harry Bridges, the dock workers of the Pacific coast struck for an end to this medieval system of work. The owners responded in late spring of 1934 by attempting to bring in scab labor. When this was discovered, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, or IBT, struck in solidarity with the longshoremen. Now, there would not be a single thing transported from the docks as Teamsters controlled all the lanes of shipping. Local police and San Francisco's Industrial Association attempted to forcibly reopen the docks in July. They were met by incensed longshoremen, who battled police with, quote, bricks, stones, and railroad spikes, unquote. The police countered with tear gas, hoses, and vomiting gas, which incapacitated and made anyone ill who inhaled it for up to 48 hours by the day-long fights end two strikers were dead while dozens were wounded on both sides militia were called in to patrol the streets this was the first instance of militia presence in San Francisco since the 1906 San Francisco earthquake when 3,000 or more people were killed and 300,000 people were left homeless. By mid-July, the situation in San Francisco was beyond dire. This was illustrated clearly when Harry Bridges called a general strike, the first one since Seattle's 1919 strike. 125,000 San Francisco workers shut the city down. They were joined by the Teamsters who spread their strike to all industries. Now nothing moved. Authorities wanted the, quote, communist insurrection, unquote, crushed without delay. But FDR felt it would be a bad idea to start his presidency with a massacre of working people. The strike, unfortunately, collapsed after only four days. The ILA agreed to arbitration with their employers and won some concessions but many aspects of the shape-up were still present for longshoremen. This general strike, however, helped inspire an entire generation of labor agitators across the West Coast, including but not limited to the future president of the United Fruit Workers, Cesar Chavez. The final major work action which rocked the country took place in Minneapolis. A local teamster's union, the 574, was led by the Dunn brothers alongside several Trotskites. They adhered to the leftist opposition to Stalin's Soviet Union and specifically to the ideas of Leon Trotsky, long since exiled by Stalin. They resisted the attempts of the president of the Teamsters, Daniel J. Tobin, to restrain their radical policies. However, the locals' policies were anything but. They simply wanted operators to abide by the NERA and Section 7A. Their arguments were rebuffed by operators who had long considered Minneapolis a, quote, citadel of the open shop, unquote. Additionally, the reactionary Citizens' Alliance resisted all attempts by the city's workers to unionize in any field. They claimed that the fact that these Teamsters were attempting to unionize was merely a cover, and they were really trying to gain control of the, quote, flow of commerce, unquote. Starting on May 12, 1934, the strike of the Teamsters was reinforced by local unemployed citizens who were granted union membership in return for support on the pickets. On top of this, the Dunn brothers and their allies had created a truly robust and organized strike system. Offering, quote, a daily strike newspaper, loudspeaker broadcasts, a commissary, and medical and ambulance services for their wounded, unquote. Placing spotters all around the city, the strike leaders were kept informed on any police or Citizens Alliance movements. They also effectively countered unwanted traffic into the city with a, quote, flying column, unquote, of militant unionists. Additionally, they frustrated law enforcement who were attempting to overwhelm their lines, as reserves were on hand and ready to be dispatched to areas of the city where they were needed. It was ingenious. The strike quickly galvanized fellow trade unions like the electricians, bricklayers, and carpenters. Bakers had no way to deliver their goods, so they shuttered their shops, and taxi drivers started refusing fares. The strike was starting to paralyze the city. The authorities needed to score a victory over the strikers. To this end, an agent provocateur in the strikers' ranks lured many men and women into a trap. Corralled behind the Minneapolis Tribune building, unarmed strikers were at the mercy of the vigilantes and the police, who beat the crowd mercilessly. Left in the alley to groan and coalesce, the unconscious strikers were rushed to Union headquarters for medical treatment. Several women had to be revived by volunteer nurses. As their comrades watched their friends and co-workers writhing on the ground, covered in their own blood, something changed in the strikers. The next few days... Where there was once peaceful protesting, there was now pipe-and-club-armed striker. They made a point to single out the many special deputies and vigilantes in the authorities' ranks. Having been cornered, the conservative socialites, who originally thought it would be jolly fun to crack a few Unionist skulls, ran like chickens chased in a henhouse. Hunted down in the nooks and crannies of the cities, many vigilantes were beaten to a bloody, unrecognizable pulp, even after they had surrendered. To combat police, strikers would launch direct assaults into police ranks, driving a van up to their positions which would expel armed strikers who would engage in close-quarters combat with authorities. The police were completely surprised and retreated with over a dozen wounded. The vigilantes' ranks, meanwhile, were devastated. Several prominent businessmen were dead. Their skulls pulverized with bats and metal pipes, while many more were wounded. Governor Floyd B. Olson was watching his state become a battleground between employer and employee, so he decided to act and called the National Guard in. An initial agreement between the two warring factions was reached, but it quickly broke down. On July 20th, a measure of vengeance was taken on the strikers by the police. Philip Dre says, quote, By clever design, the police escorted a produce convoy into the market, as if attempting to make deliveries. When, as anticipated, the lead vehicle was blocked, policemen armed with shotguns suddenly emerged. Strikers in the trucks as well as pickets on the street had no chance as the police guns blazed. Unquote. Seventy people were wounded and two would succumb to their injuries. On his deathbed, Harry Ness said, quote, Tell the boys, don't fail me now. Unquote. Tens of thousands accompanied his coffin to Ness's final resting place. Minneapolis seemed about to explode, but it was in this climate when common sense finally prevailed. In a shocking move, the bosses decided that a vote should be led to determine union representation. In almost every single case, factory workers, delivery drivers, and garbage men voted overwhelmingly for Teamster representation. The Teamsters of Minneapolis proved they were truly a force to be reckoned with. They would not allow themselves to be attacked and waylaid in the streets without equal repercussion. Black labor rights advocates were beginning to find support as well. For many years, conservative voices both within and outside of the black community were advocating against unionism. In the bygone days of American labor, these arguments held true. However, starting in the late 1920s and the early 1930s, labor rights were moving toward black inclusion. Communists led this charge, being incredibly brazen with their rhetoric and their organizing. The Deep South was one of their main campaign grounds. This explains the targeting of communists and unionists by the Ku Klux Klan as late as the 1970s. One of the primary black voices during the American labor movement was A. Philip Randolph. He was the leader of the all-black Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. These porters were some of the best-paid black workers in America. In spite of this economic fact, they were still treated repugnantly and constantly degraded by bosses and customers alike. Many were forced into 100-hour weeks and were left unpaid for overnight layoffs, and they were fired if they complained or attempted to unionize. It took almost a dozen years of constant struggle between the Brotherhood and the employers until the latter agreed to a collective bargaining agreement in 1937 more importantly for the Union and for the greater labor rights movement in America, the Brotherhood gained recognition and affiliate status with the AFL, which had long been known for its exclusionary and racist policies. Allegiances within the AFL were proving contemptuous during this time. Two schools of logic and division seemed to be fracturing the largest union in America. The traditionalists in the AFL believed trade unions should be organized along industrial lines a la the journeymen and guild system of time immemorial. The newer breed of AFLers believed unions should be organized through entire industries. This seemingly pedantic debate caused serious consternation between followers of John L Lewis who supported industrial unionism and followers of Green who supported classic trade unionism this led to physical violence at an AFL meeting in Atlantic City following a vote in which hardliner AFL members decided to maintain the status quo of trade organizing John L Lewis attempted to once more raise the issue, at which William L. Hutchison called Lewis a, quote, "'Bastard,' unquote. At this remark, Lewis bounded over several rows of chairs and punched Hutchison square in the mouth. According to a witness, Lewis proceeded to, quote, "'Adjust his tie and collar, relight his cigar, and saunter slowly through the crowded aisles of the rostrum.'" A split between traditionalists and industrialists seemed written in the stars. On November 23, 1935, Lewis resigned as AFL vice president and founded the Committee for Industrial Organization, or the CIO. The AFL dug in its heels and stuck by its age-old process. By March 1937, all members of the CIO were formally expelled from the AFL. John L. Lewis, for all his aggressive rhetoric and actions, was right when he wished to organize along entire industries. The CIO proved a colossal success, and under the leadership of Lewis, it grew unbelievably rapidly. Running to the CIO's banner were many communist and left-leaning unions. These men and women were adept organizers, and their influence helped the CIO immensely and immediately. Lewis was also proving to be one of the most popular people in America. His radio addresses were listened to by tens of millions of Americans. Often having a direct audience with Roosevelt and his cabinet, Lewis was seen as instrumental in achieving many New Deal policies. The results spoke for themselves as the CIO rapidly outpaced AFL membership within a few months of its inception. In retrospect, the AFL's decision seems incredibly foolish, especially since the CIO was not arguing for some radical change, just a change in the style of union organizing. However, for the AFL, this must have seemed like an integral link in their chain. Following initial failures in organizing workers south of the Mason-Dixon line, new attempts were made at unionizing the textile mills of North Carolina under the United Textile Workers, or UTW. The South already ignored or changed laws which did not account for racist Southern policy. So when almost 400,000 textile workers walked off work together across the nation, it must have come as a shock to the Southern bosses especially. In South Carolina, things rapidly devolved into violence when so-called deputies killed seven strikers. The strikers were energized by the president, whom they believed was on their side. One striker said that Roosevelt, quote, was the first man in the White House to understand my boss is a son of a bitch, unquote. However, the Roosevelt administration refused to support the strike. They likely feared alienating the solid South. The president asked the men and women on strike to return to work, and by September 22, 1934, the textile strike was over. No achievements were made, only dead bodies. On top of this, those who returned to work were forced into signing no-strike pledges. The Nero was being disregarded, outright violated, and challenged at every turn. Eventually, the constitutionality of the Nero was called into question, and in May 1935, the Supreme Court of the United States passed its verdict in Schechter Poultry Corp. versus the United States, or the sick chicken case. Philip Dre says, quote, The Schechter brothers were accused of selling chickens whose condition violated public health restrictions. The appellants argued that while the chickens they sold came from another state, they had bought them from a middleman in New York and thus were engaged in intrastate, not interstate, commerce. Hence the operation of their business was not subject to federal regulation. The underlying issue was whether the Roosevelt administration had the right to dictate how and in what manner an individual operated." The court unsurprisingly sided with the brothers and their sick chickens deeming the NERA and all its sections unconstitutional. Roosevelt was flabbergasted. He said, quote, A nationwide problem demands a nationwide remedy, unquote. With the court's interpretation of the Constitution, it would take 48 separate state laws to shift national economic policy. Robert F. Wagner was equally appalled. Originally born in Nastatten, which was then a part of the German Empire, he emigrated to New York City a year before the Haymarket incident with his family. He graduated from City College and then New York Law School, being admitted to the bar in 1900. Wagner became a part of the Tammany Hall Democratic political machine, which ran New York City at the time. Alongside one-time presidential candidate Al Smith, he headed the State Factory Investigating Committee. Based on suggestions by Wagner and Smith, 38 labor reform laws were introduced to New York State. Wagner was first elected senator amid a deluge of other Democratic candidates in 1932 he became an untiring advocate for union rights as well as the rights of the lower classes. His legislation includes but is not limited to the Social Security Act, the Works Progress Administration, and the Civilian Conservation Corps. Ever since Nera's passage, he had been working tirelessly on follow-up legislation in order to strengthen the New Deal and workers' rights his legislation would take aim at company unions and protect collective bargaining, saying, quote, Section 7A was written by Congress to protect the weak who could not protect themselves, and it was intended for universal application, not universal modification. Speaking on company unions, collective bargaining becomes a mockery when the spokesman of the employee is the marionette of the employer, unquote. Earning his spurs during the Progressive Era, it's hard not to see the ideals of industrial democracy at work in the New Deal. The National Labor Relations Act, or the Wagner Act, was an incredible piece of legislation. Philip Dre says, quote, it forbade employer interference with union organizing, banned employer-supported company unions, prohibited any firing of men for union membership, and insisted that employees enter in collective bargaining with the representatives of the union. The bill also endowed an administrative government board that would determine union legitimacy through on-site elections." Union leaders hoped the Wagner Act would change the unbalanced relationship between employee and employer forever. The workers, they wrote, would finally get a fair shake. Congress agreed, and the Act passed the House, then the Senate, and FDR signed the Wagner Act into law on July 5th, 1935. Organized labor had won its seat at the table. It was now considered not only respectable, but a part of American life. The former stigma around radical labor unions had, for the most part, vanished. There would still be disputes, strikes, and occasional violence, but things had clearly changed with Wagner, and they changed for the better. Unions now operated for the Democratic Party in a similar way to the bygone Democratic political machine. Come the 1936 election, organized labor repaid FDR and Wagner's loyalty. FDR won with 60% of the popular vote and carried every state in the electoral college save Vermont and Maine. It was another convincing victory for FDR, and he believed the people had vindicated his New Deal experimentation and wanted him to go a step further. With control of both the House and Senate, the Democrats were promising to shake things up once more. When FDR put forward the Judiciary Reorganization Bill, the few remaining Republicans cried foul. Philip Dre says the bill, quote, Added a new justice to the court for each existing justice who had served 10 years and did not resign or retire within six months of reaching 70 years of age. Unquote. The Supreme Court proved to be the stone FDR could not overturn. The press and the public alike shuddered at the bill's contents. This open hostility toward SCOTUS was returned with an olive branch. The contents of the Wagner Act were found constitutional by the Supreme Court, who likely feared what an irate executive branch would do with another shot-down bill. Another possible reason for the court's about-face rests in the election results. FDR won so overwhelmingly that the court perhaps felt it was their duty to vindicate the American people's choice and his New Deal. The changes to American life did not stop with Wagner. There had been a growing movement throughout the country for unemployment insurance for years. Starting with Wisconsin and spreading outward, it nearly propelled Upton Sinclair to the governorship of California in 1934. The Social Security Act was passed in late 1935 and remains the most popular piece of legislation in American history. The Walsh-Healy Public Contracts Act of 1936 prohibited the employment of children, created the 40-hour week, and enacted a minimum wage for government employees. The Fair Labor Standards Act passed in the summer of 1938, and it expanded minimum wage to every single American employee. This act was upheld by SCOTUS in 1941 while the right to picket was upheld by the same institution in 1940. The year 1937 proved incredibly bracing for America. A recession had rocked the country, and people were thrown out of work in great numbers as production took a nosedive. This shook the faith the American public had in the New Deal, but what exactly caused it? In recent years, New research on the subject suggests the fault lay with NERA and some of its clauses. Lee Ohanian is a professor at UCLA, and his work on the subject of the New Deal in the 1937 recession specifically is well known. He asserts that through NERA a, quote, cartel economy, unquote, was created, with businesses exploiting loopholes in NERA, to artificially inflate the prices for their goods. Many businesses would choose to give union heads whatever they asked. This included increased union wages, which artificially inflated prices for goods, creating a vicious economic cycle. In retrospect, the overadjustment of labor rights in America may have contributed to the length of the Great Depression. Leo Hanein asserts it prolonged the Depression seven years. But it was through trial and error that FDR came to a relatively similar conclusion. In his later presidency, FDR changed some of these clearly ineffective policies. I've seen some people argue that FDR should have done nothing. He should have let the market correct itself. I think that that's an incredibly shallow perspective, and it's politically motivated in almost all cases. If FDR did nothing, America may have easily fallen victim to a far-right or far-left takeover. FDR's presidency nearly fell victim itself to a corporatist coup in 1933. Additionally, In 1937, Italo Balbo and the Italian Air Force were greeted by millions of American spectators as they toured the entire country. How do you think it would look if FDR did nothing during this time? As a civil servant at the highest level, it was his responsibility to attempt to correct the issues facing his decrepit and dying nation. In late 1936, just before the recession, a relatively new union called the United Auto Workers, or UAW, had broken away from the AFL and joined the CIO. The UAW represented 400,000 workers from the big three, General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler. Across America, Car-making was a highly lucrative industry, as over two million new cars rolled off American assembly lines each year. GM was, however, remaining obstinate in the face of collective bargaining. The main force behind these tactics was GM's vice president, William S. Knudsen. Flint, Michigan, was proving to be the epicenter of this labor unrest between GM officials and the UAW. Unfortunately, Flint was considered a, quote, company town, unquote. Some local auto workers showed their loyalty to the Big Three by joining far-right paramilitary organizations. On the UAW side, many communist organizers showed zeal on behalf of the auto workers, they needed all the help they could get. In their jobs, they were treated like tools and machinery by management. Bathroom breaks were forbidden, and men were forced to run to the restroom and risk catching hell from their foreman for holding up the whole production line. One of the wives of these workers said, quote, They're not men anymore. My husband is only 30, but to look at him, you'd think he was 50 and all played out, Unquote. A day before New Year's Eve... Flint workers learned that machinery and equipment was about to be shipped out to other GM factories because operators feared a strike. They got one. The workers simply stopped their toiling and sat down. It was an emotional experience for those involved. The rattle and hum of the factory floor ceased, and all that remained were the workers, bound in silent solidarity. Bosses were absolutely confounded. How could these men simply stop working? How could the bosses import scabs when union workers remained seated by their machines? How could the bosses remove the workers, since technically the bosses invited them into the plant? It was a conundrum, to be sure. GM insisted the workers leave, but the workers remained seated. They would not leave, they said, until the union was recognized by GM and collective bargaining the law of the land, was acknowledged. When told of the strike, FDR quipped, quote, "'Well, it's illegal, but what law are they breaking? The law of trespass? But shooting it out and killing a lot of people because they have violated the law of trespass somehow offends me. There must be another way. Why can't these fellows in General Motors meet with a committee of the workers? Talk it out. They would get a settlement. It would not be so terrible." Unquote. GM remained obstinate in the face of its workers, the president, and public opinion. On January 2, 1937, GM obtained an injunction from a judge. However, it was quickly discovered that this same judge owned $200,000 worth of GM stock. GM backed down from this injunction and demanded the militia be deployed in order to violently clear their plant of the striking workers. The governor did not acquiesce. He was elected as a new dealer and supported the rights of the strikers. The strike soon spread to other plants. GM decided a show of force would dislodge their recalcitrant workers. Police dispersed tear gas through broken windows, while workers inside the plant fought back from attempted incursions with, quote, coffee mugs, pop bottles... Iron bolts and heavy automobile door hinges. Unquote. Just outside the plant, local UAW leader Victor Ruther was shouting words of encouragement to the strikers from a loudspeaker attached to his car. He said, quote, We wanted peace. General Motors chose war. Give it to them. Unquote. From the roof, Hastily improvised slingshots were loosing door hinges down onto the heads of police. Following the first assault, a second was attempted by the police forces on hand. The elements themselves seemed to be on the side of the strikers, as the wind picked up and pushed the tear gas back into police ranks. As this happened, the workers were delivering a measure of payback for their brethren in the Lawrence Strike of 1911 they began dousing the police with water hoses in the middle of winter. Adding insult to injury, retreating police were pelted with snowballs from the picket line, just outside the plant. In response, police began shooting into the crowd. In total, 13 picketers and strikers would be injured, and nine police officers would be wounded as well. Following this battle, the governor felt he had no choice but to call in National Guardsmen, They were deployed to keep order on the streets and were not to be used to clear the plant. The rest of January saw both sides hunker down for a long fight. On January 31st, GM sought a new court order, being careful to select an unaffiliated judge this time. The strikers were doing all they could to confuse authorities as to their true designs. They intentionally provoked a police battle on February 9th Cops from the surrounding area rushed to the scene, leaving a Chevrolet engine-making plant clear for the strikers to invade. After chasing out bosses and non-union workers alike, a sit-down strike was called there as well. Finally granted a favorable injunction on February 10th, bosses gave workers until 3 p.m. to vacate all GM property, or the union would face a fine of $15 million. The militia was to be used to clear the building if the workers inside failed to heed the court injunction. John L. Lewis was adamant that GM's workers would remain striking until the end, saying, "'I shall walk up to the largest window in the plant, "'open it, divest myself of my outer raiment, "'remove my shirt and bare my bosom. "'Then, when you order your troops to fire,' "'Mine will be the first breast that those bullets will strike.'" The only person who could now prevent a massacre was the governor, Frank Murphy, who was at the impasse of impasses. Two starkly different roads lie before him. Go against the federal injunction and defy big business interests, or order the militia into action, dooming countless workers inside. He could not bring himself to give the order. Saying quote, "I'm not going down in history as Bloody Murphy. If I sent those soldiers right in on the men, there'd be no telling how many would be killed. It would be inconsistent with everything I have ever stood for in my whole political life." Unquote. Realizing the governor would not give the order, operators were at a roadblock. Police were not enough to clear out the men, and the militia was not going to be ordered into the plant. After 44 days of bloodletting and stonewalling, GM officials finally agreed to follow the law. An absolutely exhausted Knudsen said, Let us have peace and make cars. It was an unprecedented victory for the UAW, and Victor Ruther, alongside his brother Walter Ruther, were propelled into the national spotlight. Sit-downs became a phenomenon in American work life. Over 900 were recorded in just three years. Henry Ford had, for a long time, championed high wages and worker benefits. His autocratic but paternal rule was known as Fordism. Although he wanted high wages for his workers, he refused to recognize the right of any union and he was a vehement anti-Semite. Overseeing the ailing Ford's empire was his head of security, the former boxer, Harry Bennett. His web of company spies kept both management and laborers in a state of perpetual fear. Bennett looked up to Ford, and Ford returned the favor, viewing him as a sort of surrogate son. Edsel Ford, Henry Ford's actual son, had a fraught relationship with his father. Edsel supported moderate reforms, which he believed would improve the working relationship of owner and worker alike. Henry Ford, however, was stuck in his 1920s welfare capitalist mindset. The UAW were determined to break the will of the last major non-union carmaker in America. On May 26, 1937, Walter Ruther was leading a group of clergymen, sympathizers, and reporters to an overpass, which trailed to a Ford-owned property. Ruther had a permit to distribute leaflets to passers-by on the overpass. In spite of this, a large contingent of Bennett's secret police confronted the union organizers. In a moment, the hired thugs were wailing on both Walter Ruther and Richard Frankenstein, a fellow organizer. Frankenstein got the worst of the gang attack. His shirt was pulled over his head as he was punched repeatedly in the face by several thugs. Ruther was slammed on the concrete floor, quote, three or four times, unquote, all while being kicked and punched by men with brass knuckles. The thugs descended on the rest of the congregation, consisting of union men, clergymen, women, and reporters. All were assaulted. In total, 20 people were wounded in the so-called Battle of the Overpass. Frankenstein was absolutely battered, while Reuther was visibly shaken and bleeding from his nose. Ford attempted to blame UAW organizers for this unprovoked attack, but there were simply too many witnesses. In his petulant anger, Ford withdrew advertising from national papers which ran negative coverage on his company. The scrutiny from this battle was such that a federal inquiry into labor practices in America was launched. In December of 1937, the La Follette Civil Liberties Committee released its report. It cited spying and private detective agencies as the main cause of violence in most labor disputes. Spying was, quote, almost universal, unquote. Companies like GM spent $800,000 on Pinkerton spies annually. Philip Dre says, quote, when the firm grew concerned that some of its spies might be stealing company trade secrets, it hired spies to report on them. Soon it felt compelled to employ yet a third tier of spies to keep tabs on the previous two. Unquote. Edsel attempted to make his father see reason. The tides were clearly turning against Henry Ford, but the careworn industrialists refused to budge. It would take years for him to see the light, and he would not gaze willingly. Since the collapse of the amalgamation, there had not been a nationwide steelworkers' union, but this was about to change. Calling itself SWAC, or the Steel Workers' Organizing Committee, it was headed by Philip Murray, the vice president of the CIO. U.S. Steel had for a long time been home to very large company unions. SWAC began to infiltrate these entities. Around the same time as the GM strike, John L. Lewis met several times with Miriam C. Taylor, the CEO of U.S. Steel. Wishing to avoid a costly work action as well as capitalize on newfound profits, Taylor agreed to terms with SWAC, and they granted a pay hike and an eight-hour day. This agreement was met with follow-up agreements with other large firms. Some entities resisted this new trend. One such entity was a conglomerate of several steel companies known as Little Steel. They reacted harshly to the May 1937 strike which saw 75,000 workers storm off their jobs together. On May 30th, hundreds of strikers gathered around the Republic Steel plant to hear speeches and enjoy a spring day with their families. They began a march toward the plant, chanting, quote, C.I.O., C.I.O., unquote. At the march's head were two young men carrying American flags. Before the main group of strikers reached the plant's gate, however, police and armed guards began firing haphazardly into the marchers. A police riot ensued, with police chasing down and executing unarmed civilians. Ten lay dead, while over a hundred people were injured the authorities reacted indifferently to the plight of those killed by rampaging law enforcement. FDR proclaimed, quote, "...a plague on both your houses." Unquote. FDR's callous indifference toward those butchered outside Republic Steel may have been based in his declining personal relationship with John L. Lewis. Both men were firebrands, but they had very different personalities. Lewis often used the president in speeches and claims, while the president saw Lewis as a flamboyant but necessary annoyance. Lewis envied Roosevelt's position as leader of the nation. Following the Shakespearean remark by the president, Lewis hit back. In a radio address listened to by millions of people, he said, "'It ill behooves one who has supped at labor's table,' and who has been sheltered in labor's house to curse with equal fervor and fine impartiality both labor and its adversaries when they become locked in deadly embrace." The two finally split in 1940, after Francis Perkins claims Roosevelt rebuked the offer of Lewis to be his running mate for his unprecedented third term. Lewis supposedly said, quote, Mr. President, you may be defeated unless you have a representative of labor on the ticket, and unless that representative is myself. Unquote. At which Roosevelt is said to have responded in his dry New England way, quote, That's very interesting, John, but which place on the ticket are you reserving for me? Unquote. Additionally, Roosevelt was close personal friends with Sidney Hillman a man of Russian and Jewish heritage, who was also a huge force in the labor movement throughout his life. Francis Perkins claims Lewis held anti-Semitic beliefs and disregarded Hillman on these grounds. Hillman is remembered by history as a, quote, labor statesman, unquote, and he led the charge against corruption, organized crime, and Bolshevism within the labor movement's ranks. Additionally, Lewis was an ardent isolationist. He saw the storm clouds brewing once more. When France fell in 1940, he believed this foreshadowed the downfall of Europe and America should not get involved. In October of 1940, Lewis laid down the gauntlet and threw his support behind Republican challenger Wendell Wilkie. If Wilkie lost in November Lewis promised he would resign as president of the C.I.O. In closing, he said, quote, "...sustain me now, or repudiate me." Unquote. The standoff at the Ford Auto Parts plant was still raging. UAW launched what it hoped would be the drive which would make Ford agree to unionize. On April 1, 1941... The strike began in earnest after 11 night shift workers were fired without cause. The gigantic workforce split over the matter of striking. Many of the plant's black workers were on the side of the company, and with good reason. Ford was one of the few industrial bosses making it a point to hire black workers. They repaid his objectivity and occupied the plant against the UAW strikers outside. Very rapidly, hand-to-hand combat began developing along racial lines. The situation threatened to become explosive. The standoff between white union workers and black non-union workers was ended by the NAACP. The president of the association arrived to bring black workers to the side of the union. The president's name was Walter White he led the NAACP for almost 25 years and following his tenure wrote an autobiography on his experiences in the book A Man Called White. Thanks to his leadership, black workers ended their occupation of the plant. He is also one of the main people responsible for black voters increasingly supporting Democratic candidates come election time. Edsel Ford, meanwhile, had managed to finally come to grips with his father's personality. He got the autocrat to agree to a union election. This vote went overwhelmingly to the UAW. Obstinate to the end, Ford threatened to shutter every plant he owned. Changing his mind one last time, he agreed to recognize the union. He would have to work with his workers if he wanted his workers to work for him. On December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Imperial Japanese forces surprise attacked America's Pacific fleet as it lay anchored in Pearl Harbor. The damage inflicted was extensive. This attack coincided with Imperial Japanese invasions across the Pacific. Following this, Germany declared war on the United States while the American people were firmly entrenched with the Allied powers and the Soviet Union. Within weeks, Roosevelt, now in his third term, met with labor and industrial leaders and called for an agreement to the cessation of strikes, lockouts, and sit-downs. Henceforth, all labor disputes would be handled by the War Labor Board which applied inflation rates to wages, which were inconsistent with the current rates of early 1943. John L. Lewis resigned as head of the CIO after Roosevelt's election, but he was still president of the United Mine Workers of America. He lamented the poverty facing many miners if wages failed to keep up. He said, "...when illness strikes the mine workers' family," They cannot be cured with an anti-inflation dissertation. The facts of life in the mining homes of America cannot be pushed aside by the flamboyant theories of an idealistic economic philosophy. In all, the Labor Board fulfilled its obligations and arbitrated hundreds of labor decisions throughout the war. But there were certain sectors of American life which had gone by the wayside. Following several wildcat or impromptu strikes, Lewis voiced his willingness to stand up to coal operators and fight for more money for the miners of America. On May 2, 1943, Roosevelt ordered the government of the United States to seize control of the mines on unofficial strike. They were to be manned by government crews. In the end, Lewis ended up having his cake and eating it too, winning a $1.50 wage increase for his miners. Considering the war situation, this quote-unquote strike caused bad publicity for Lewis, but he remained adamant in his fight for miners' rights. Come the 1944 election, Roosevelt was attempting to serve a historic fourth term in office. On his side once more were labor advocates like Sidney Hillman who, alongside the C.I.O., began campaigning under the auspices of a Political Action Committee, or PAC. They saw the defeat of fascism in sight, and looked toward a new world of post-war cooperation amongst nations and working people alike. This PAC was criticized by the usual suspects, John L. Rankin of Mississippi said Hillman was a, quote, Russian-born racketeer who wants to be the new Hitler of America, unquote. This anti-Semitism was on display throughout America, which refused Jewish refugees as the Holocaust gassed millions and the Hormacht shot millions more. The war's end in 1945, following the suicide of Adolf Hitler and the nuclear bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, culminated in celebration across the victorious nations. The defeated were left with the rubble they once claimed was the center of the universe. For all their grandstanding and so-called racial superiority, they were met with the stone-cold reality of the greatest multi-country, heterogeneous, military coalition in recorded history. Mexican, Mongolian, Brazilian, South African, Kiwi, Aussie, Canadian, Chinese, Filipino, Yugoslavian, Greek, Ethiopian, French, Belgian, Dutch, Norwegian, Czech, Polish, British, Soviet, and American fought for the same common goal throughout North Africa, the Pacific, Italy, and mainland Europe. On the home front, America was irrevocably changed. Women and black people were no longer on the outside looking in for crucial American jobs. They were now the holders of these jobs, as millions of white men were drafted into the fighting ranks of American armies. America would have to face the future on uneven footing— President Roosevelt was dead before the war's end, leaving Harry Truman in charge of a country which was as unsure of his leadership as he was. Before he died, Roosevelt promised the American people a, quote, second Bill of Rights, unquote, which would have guaranteed work, health care, and security to every single American. Truman would choose not to follow up on this pledge. The First Great War caused consternation and upheaval in America. Following its parting blows, many worried history might repeat itself after World War II. Labor leaders believed they had reached a crucial crossroads. The coming post-war years would prove whether labor had had its day in the sun or if it was here to stay. American industry had come out of the war on top. All other competitors were either atomized, bombed out, or ineffectual command economies. Alongside a New Deal-tired Congress, private and state forces coalesced to bring down the power of organized labor. On their side were SCOTUS, who sided with the United States when they claimed the 1946 UMW strike violated court injunction. It was a sign of serious change to come. Truman time and again sided with big business in labor disputes. In the above-mentioned case, he declared a state of emergency so he could use federal troops to enforce mining. Once again in May 1946, he threatened 300,000 railroad workers with government occupation if the railmen refused to return to work. Truman was altogether perturbed at the amount of work actions happening across the country, which, quote, hampered the nation's productivity, unquote. He deemed it necessary to, quote, adopt a comprehensive labor policy, which will tend to reduce the number of stoppages of work and other acts which injure labor, capital, and the whole population, unquote. Seeing the changing times, Francis case attempted to capitalize with a bill aimed at curtailing the rights of organized labor. Philip Dre says the case bill, quote, established a federal mediation board, a 60-day pre-strike cooling-off period. It also banned secondary boycotts and allowed for injunctions against certain forms of picketing, unquote. Sidney Hillman was furious at the bill's contents. He collected a million signatures and urged the president to veto the case bill, arguing it would embark America, quote, on the road to fascism, unquote. By the 1946 midterms, Republicans had garnered enough strength to gain veto-proof majorities in both the House and Senate. America had to strap in for a conservative New Deal. They first set out to tarnish the Wagner Act, with several new amendments known as the Taft-Hartley Bill. This bill was a repudiation of many of the rights gained by labor in the past generation. It stipulated the beginning of right-to-work laws, which soon gained prevalence throughout the nation. It destroyed the right of industry-wide collective bargaining and gave employers the right to sue over boycotts. Union heads had to swear they were not members of the Communist Party, and it expanded presidential authority in seeking injunctions against work actions. In effect, it turned the clock back on nearly half a century of gradual reform, culminating in FDR's New Deal. Many union leaders fell in line with the Taft-Hartley bill and eagerly admitted to not being communists, John Lewis had a problem with such language. Regardless, he fell in line too, not wishing to seem disloyal to the country he truly loved. Laborites decried the bill bitterly, but it was finally passed by an overwhelming veto-proof margin. Philip Dre says these protestations by union leaders across the country, quote, were the sounds of helpless rage as labor was shoved over a cliff, unquote. If conservatives hoped the Taft-Hartley would be the beginning of a trend, their hopes proved dashed. Even the bill's language proved ineffective in curtailing striking in any meaningful way. In the fall of 1949, a seminal victory was won by steelworkers who threatened to strike in response to bearing the sole burden of paying for health insurance and pension plans. Over half a million steel workers across the country shut down their foundries. Led by Philip Murray, he claimed the workers were attempting to, quote, safeguard the democratic way of life against totalitarian onslaughts from left or right, unquote. In tandem with this work action, coal miners struck in the hundreds of thousands as well, threatening to stop American industry altogether. 11 days into the strike, the effects were already being felt in all corners of the country. Dire warnings were sounded that if this strike continued for much longer, millions would be out of work. The rubber finally met the road on Halloween when Bethlehem Steel agreed to provide pensions to their employees who had served the company for 25 years or more. Meanwhile, Health care would be paid 50-50 by employee and employer and would apply to all 70,000 of Bethlehem's employees. It ended up serving as a model. In the face of Taft-Hartley, the CIO mounted a truly ambitious campaign, Operation Dixie. It was another attempt at unionizing the textile mills of the former Confederacy, It was done in the hopes of equalizing wages between northern and southern textile workers as traditional textile bases in New England and New York were being abandoned for southern cities whose productivity was increasing exponentially due to improvements to the air conditioner. In spite of this economic modernization in some sectors, the South remained deeply entrenched in apartheid. Southern Democrats became a maligned force in the new-look Democratic Party, which garnered much of its newer support from Northern black workers, women, and trade unionists. The Southern Democrat turned more violently to racism and sectional differences. In 1948, Strom Thurmond led the white supremacists out of the party ranks— and, as a third-party candidate, nearly spoiled Truman's second term. He managed to win four southern states, as well as over a million popular votes. Democrats had been pushing closer towards segregation and supporting black liberation. In 1941, following the original March on Washington, led by A. Philip Randolph, Roosevelt had ordered an end to segregation in federal defense contracts while also creating the Fair Employment Practices Commission, or FEPC. Following his predecessor's lead, Truman desegregated the entire armed forces in 1948. Additionally, he established the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, which began investigating lynchings in Georgia. A hand was finally being extended to the black workers on a national level. John L. Lewis, alongside Walter White, and Thurgood Marshall founded CORE, or the Congress of Racial Equality. In this climate, it's little wonder Operation Dixie was doomed to fail. Spread thin and lacking the logistics necessary to organize the solid South, Union leaders became stymied in the mire of Southern anti-Unionism almost immediately— One of their main problems was that their best organizers, the communists, were purged from union ranks by union leadership in the hopes of looking, quote, more American, unquote. The AFL partook in the purges greedily, expelling many senior members because of their previous work with communist causes like the unemployed movements of the 1930s. Meanwhile, in Operation Dixie, CIO organizers were met with repeated roadblocks in the form of local customs and laws. When granted union elections, most textile workers voted against them, believing they had it good on only a few dollars a week. The only other outlet for southern labor was laying asphalt outside or pruning weeds on, quote, red clay farms, unquote, many of which were still recovering from the ecological disaster, the Dust Bowl. After several years of wasting resources, the CIO retreated from the land of Dixie. Foreign competitors in automaking flooded the South, taking advantage of anti-union laws and incredibly low wages. In 1954, the Supreme Court finally ruled the Jim Crow laws were illegal. Eventually, in 1957, federal soldiers would be sent into the South to uphold the desegregation of Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. The original rupture of the AFL and the CIO was beginning to heal. Both were incredibly powerful forces, boasting 9 million and 6 million members, respectively. The main antagonisms remained with the older members, who still remembered the, quote, punch herd around the working class, unquote. However, in November of 1952, both William Green of the AFL and Philip Murray of the CIO passed away. That same month, the first Republican since Herbert Hoover ascended to the presidency. Dwight Ike D. Eisenhower cruised easily to the White House on a massive ad campaign, we like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president, and his overwhelming support from war veterans. The new CIO president was Walter Ruther, survivor of the Battle of the Overpass. One of his earliest memories was watching his father cry as Eugene Debs was taken to prison for violating the Espionage Act. He remembered how his father would say, How can they imprison so kind and gentle a man? Walter Ruther looked more like an all-American quarterback than a union leader and he was one of the least corruptible men in the whole country. Even opponents could not help but admire his uncanny negotiating ability. A flummoxed GM boss once turned to him and said, quote, "'Young man, I wish you were selling used cars for me.' Reuther responded, puzzled, quote, "'Used cars?' The boss repeated, quote, "'Yes, used cars.' Anyone can sell new cars. Reuther's counterpart and new president of the AFL was George Meany, head of the New York City Plumbers Union, and quite frankly, an intimidating looking man. He was described as, quote, a cross between a bulldog and a bull, unquote, and was constantly found clutching a stogie in his teeth. If there was ever an antonym to the smiling, clean-cut Walter Reuther, it was George Meany. Reuther was straight-laced and never flashy, while Meany partook in the finer things of life, eating expensive meals and staying at swanky hotels. Their two contrasting personalities seemed to play off one another perfectly. Working in secret... Ruther and Meany planned to merge the two largest unions in America. The AFL-CIO was cleaved into existence in February of 1955 to much celebration. Their stated goals were to exponentially increase union membership and battle corruption and to destroy even the slightest hint of communism in their ranks. In a characteristic move... Ruther voluntarily gave up leadership to the deference of Meany and accepted the role of Vice President of Industrial Unions. In 1956, American Union membership was at its zenith. Over 17.5 million Americans belonged to unions. This was over 33% of the urban population. At its height, the labor movement looked down from the precipice on which they were standing and saw a long downhill slope. And it was a slope that was partially of their own making. The American economy showed no sign of sputtering and continued its ascent in the face of a new Cold War against the Soviet Union. People could afford two cars, a house, and a large family. And they began identifying more and more with their place of business and claiming loyalty to it as opposed to relatively abstract ideas like union solidarity. Blue-collar jobs were declining in favor of office and service-related work. American industrialization had hit its precipice, and now it was beginning to decline. This transitional process is still happening, and with it union membership has fallen precipitously. White-collar work opportunities began to give loyal workers the ability to move and seek higher pay from within a company structure. Work stopped being a static thing based around several large industrial cities. Now the whole country was open for movement and business. The labor movement now had to come to terms with the wounds it had inflicted on itself. First came the membership boom of the 1950s, which was directly attributed to union competition. AFL and CIO were rival entities. They struggled and planned hostile takeovers of locals and impromptu votes for new representation. This struggle was incredibly bitter, but it was undeniably helpful for the American labor movement. Next came the most egregious offenses by the labor unions. Starting during the war and ramping up afterwards, American unions became exceedingly anti-communists and wished to drive this point home to the authorities. The AFL and then the AFL-CIO worked hand-in-hand with the Central Intelligence Agency to undermine and co-opt the labor movement across the globe. The AFL's objective in these covert operations was to gain sympathy with foreign unions and then, through subversion, bribery, and destabilization, destroy them from the inside. This began almost immediately following the Second World War. Labor may have had a chance to build a truly international, grand coalition in the face of reactionary lawmakers across the globe. Instead, America's quote-unquote greatest union actively sided with undemocratic forces to bring an end to free will amongst workers in other countries. It was a betrayal of the highest order. Unions received millions of dollars in CIA funding, much more than any donation they could acquire, to operate things like dummy unions, which claimed no members but were given influence in European Union elections. Headed by a former communist, the AFL used its International Affairs Department as a front for the CIA and anti-communist insurgents. They justified this, and likely still do, by claiming they were destroying democracy and union solidarity in order to save it. Throughout the late 1940s, Stalinism prevailed throughout Central Eastern Europe. Former democracies like Czechoslovakia were now forcibly turned into one-party satellite states. The purges followed, and many intellectuals, reformists, and trade unionists were called fascists and class enemies. In the worst instances, those found guilty of quote-unquote treason were executed, and with their deaths, newspapers ran the banners quote, to a dog, a dog's death, unquote. Armed with the atomic bomb, the Soviet and American superpowers vied for supremacy throughout the world in proxy wars and coups in underdeveloped nations. The worst instances of AFL-CIA activity in Europe occurred in southern France, where union toughs were hired to crack down on communist-run unions turning the port city of Marseille into an anti-union stronghold well into the 1970s. Some American union leaders felt moral qualms about this sort of thing. Walter Reuther, for example, decried it as, quote, the chief weakness of American foreign policy, unquote. Indeed, America was proving, in some cases, to be as draconian and heavy-handed as the Soviet Union when dealing with countries in their, quote, sphere of influence, unquote. Just a few examples of America's brutish tactics include Indonesia's purge of communists and its preceding invasion of East Timor the overthrow and murder of the democratically elected socialist Patrice Lumumba in Zaire, and the American support of countless racist South American and Caribbean dictators. As American unions cracked down on unions abroad, everyday Americans were being harassed by their government for their supposed beliefs. The second Red Scare was in full swing, and it was headed by Joseph McCarthy and his gang of delusional conservative politicians. Often overlooked during this period is a simultaneous Purple Scare, in which LGBT individuals were purged from public positions because of their identity or sexual orientation. One of the leaders of these oustings of supposed LGBT individuals was Roy Cohn, a famous conservative lawyer who would later die of HIV AIDS. Walter Ruther had been through the ringer, and by the time the 50s began, he was lucky to be alive. In 1948, he was attacked in his home by a shotgun-armed assailant or assailants. Ruther was drying his dishes and turning to his wife, when four slugs tore through his right arm and chest. As he turned, another slug went through his back and out of his stomach. Conscious through all of this, Reuther shouted, quote, Those dirty sons of bitches! They have to shoot a man in the back! They won't come out of the open and fight! Unquote. In the rush to save his life, doctors accidentally infected Ruther's blood with malaria and hepatitis. Following months of physical therapy, Ruther could use his right arm again, but he had to train himself to write with his left. Thirteen months later, his brother Victor was shot in the face by a shotgun blast. He had to have his eye surgically removed. When Attorney General Tom Clark requested the FBI investigate the shootings, J. Edgar Hoover refuted him. No one was ever arrested for the two nearly deadly attacks. In the wake of both attacks, Ruther moved his family to the suburbs and hired a bodyguard, while his brother emigrated from America, bound for Paris. American labor's interference with foreign unions did not stop with Europe and Asia, but moved more aggressively to South American shores. Under the American Institute for Free Labor Development, or AFL, the AFL-CIO reached new heights of conspiracy. In 1954, Eiffel was instrumental in bringing down the pro-labor government of Jacobo Arbenz. Arbenz was threatening land reform, which would end the United Fruit Company's reign of feudalism across Guatemala. Brought in to lead the liberation of Guatemala was Colonel Carlos Castillo Armas, who upon seizing power proved to be a blood-soaked right-wing dictator. The AFL-CIA moved on to British Guyana, where it undermined the elected government of Chedi Jagan. Continuing its reign of terror, it struck in the Dominican Republic in 1965, and finally, it helped lend military and monetary support to the overthrow of the democratically elected Allende government in Chile. In a final address to his people before taking his own life, President Allende says, quote, Workers of my country, I have faith in Chile and its destiny. Other men will overcome this dark and bitter moment when treason seeks to prevail. Keep in mind that, much sooner than later, the great avenues will again be opened through which will pass free men to construct a better society. Long live Chile, unquote. Similar sentiments at different times expressed by America's labor martyrs. How would they feel knowing American unions were the prime movers of these actions, which saw the resurgence of reactionary governments across the world? These revelations were not uncovered until the mid-1960s, when they were revealed accidentally at a routine congressional hearing. Meanwhile, at home, critics were claiming that American labor unions were vastly corrupt. In truth, there had always been some form of graft in almost all union halls and jobs. There were kickbacks and extortion, and preferential treatment ran rampant. As membership in unions rose, however, union treasuries began a steep ascent into the millions and tens of millions. This meant corruption could be even more lucrative and devastating if discovered. Previously, in American labor's bygone days, whole treasuries were carried on the treasurer's person. In the new modern world of the 1950s, treasurers became instrumental in covering up such graft and shady dealings. The whole concept of what a labor leader did and how they were supposed to function had changed. Union leaders now had to shake hands with senators and lawmakers, not the workers they supposedly represented. It became big business unto itself, and like any business, corruption, if left unchecked and unregulated, only gets worse. Unions were no different in their level of corruption than any major industry or business of the same exact time. Labor unions were singled out because they were supposed to be for the little guy. Those accused of corruption were stealing from the working class, not some nameless billionaire corporation. The effects of corruption have completely destroyed the image of the labor movement in the eyes of many conservatives and moderates. It is not without cause, even though it is convenient to their interests to hold these beliefs. Union leaders who participated in corruption were complete hypocrites. And they, of course, should be held accountable for the harm they caused. But on the whole, unions were and are not corrupt. They, like all things in modern society, have the ability to be corrupted or to maintain corrupt elements. The main influence and the most famous is the influence of organized crime on labor unions. I intend on going deeper into this subject on the next episode in this series called Death and Dishonor. But just to give a preview of that, 1947 was the first stirring of something amiss within labor unions with the intrepid investigative journalism of Malcolm Johnson, who worked for the New York Sun. He was one of the first to write openly of a, quote, underworld syndicate, unquote. The heart of this entire criminal enterprise, which ran coast to coast, was centered around labor unions and the longshoremen who worked the piers. This so-called phantom government ran the underworld and all its under-the-table dealings. In response to Johnson's Pulitzer Prize-winning piece, Tennessee Senator Estes Kefauver began a series of nationally televised committee hearings. These hearings are remembered by many as the beginning of America's infatuation with the Mafia. Twenty million Americans watched the hearings from home. Seeing its success, a young Robert Kennedy intended on uncovering the whole truth behind the connection between organized labor and organized crime. As if to drive home the need for more understanding on the connection between the two, New York Post writer Victor Rysel had acid thrown in his face by a group of men. He was attacked after criticizing Johnny Dio, a known union officer and racketeer. In the wake of the attack, Eisenhower demanded the necessary reforms from the AFL-CIO. George Meany promised them, saying, quote, just as we have defeated the enemies without, so will we defeat the enemies from within. Unquote. Kennedy's inquiry into organized labor racketeering would focus primarily on the International Teamsters Brotherhood, who were well known for participating in corruption and had several presidents directly implicated with organized crime. The ITB's first president was Cornelius P. Shea who went on to work with Al Capone and The Outfit in Chicago. Kennedy's first target was then-Union President Dave Beck. Beck had been in the process of growing the Union's membership and oversaw construction of a five-story Union headquarters in Washington, D.C. Kennedy and his associate, Carmine Bellino, believed Beck was dipping into Union coffers. They were correct. Beck spent union money on everything. It did not matter how big or how small the item, it was purchased with union funds. Heading this bipartisan commission was then-Senator JFK and Republicans like Barry Goldwater and Joseph McCarthy. Seeing the hammer about to fall, Beck conveniently departed on a vacation to the Caribbean, Ted Cruz style. Upon his return he invoked the Fifth Amendment countless times. To TV audiences, he was guilty. George Meany decided then and there to expel the Teamsters from the AFL's ranks. Waiting to be interviewed next was none other than Jimmy Hoffa, a charismatic and likable labor leader. He had led his first strike at 19 and was integral in extending Teamster membership to include long-haul truckers. Controlling the roads, warehouses, and the city Teamsters were an incredibly powerful force in the labor movement, and they still are. The recent victory for UPS workers was astonishing and will be discussed in detail later in this series. Philip Dre says, quote, Hoffa's brashness and the fact that his success had been self made endeared him to his followers. Unquote. Indeed, Hoffa was one of the most popular union leaders of the entire era. His association with Johnny Dio, the man accused of orchestrating the acid attack on Victor Rysel, did hamper his public image a bit, but his star still shined in spite of the criticism and accusations he faced. Dio is remembered for striking a newspaper man who got too close to the racketeer and shouting, quote, Don't you know I have a family? Unquote. Inspired by the string of allegations against organized labor, On the Waterfront, a film by Elia Kazan, illustrates beautifully the corruption and violence used against working men by union bosses and their mafioso handlers alike. Kennedy, meanwhile, was stuck grappling with the real-world union boss, Hoffa. Brought to trial, Hoffa coolly denied bribing a federal official. He said the envelope with $2,000 inside, which he had handed to a former Secret Service agent, was supposed to be payment for legal services, not a bribe. Next, he brought boxing legend Joe Lewis into the court to sway the partially black jury to his side. He already enjoyed support from black Teamsters, the country over, who he supported fully in their integration process in the union. He was acquitted but he still had to deal with Kennedy and the TV cameras. In spite of his long-winded answers and obstinacy in the face of questions, some revelations were very incriminating. The worst was the supposed retirement community of Sun Valley just outside Orlando. Hoffa authorized half a million Teamster dollars to be used as collateral on a Florida bank loan, which would be given to the developer was also a Teamster and close personal friends with Hoffa. Half the plots were to be made available to Hoffa whenever he wanted them. Brochures touted the, quote, union retirement community, unquote, as the future, where former Teamsters could spend their last years amongst like-minded individuals. The developer spent all the money he was allotted before he remembered to make the homes in Sun Valley habitable for human beings. A road to nothing and nowhere defined the settlement. There was no way in, and not a single amenity was available. Sun Valley collapsed, and the Florida bank kept every penny of union member money. In his defense, Hoffa protested, quote, I have given 25 years of my life to fighting for this union. I have fought for what I believe is right and good, against forces more vicious than you can imagine. I promise to continue that fight as long as I live." More than a thousand witnesses and 46,000 pages of testimony made up Kennedy's hearing known officially as the McClellan Committee it concluded that the vast, unprecedented power of organized crime and the Mafia were out of control. This so-called hoodlum empire was running America's underground and controlling dissent through ruthless acts of violence. Upon its conclusion, the hearings changed American perception of the labor movement forever. Unions were no longer considered good. At best, they were corrupt. At worst, they were vicious criminals. Walter Reuther was ashamed. He said, quote, American labor had better roll up its sleeves. It had better get the stiffest broom and brush it can find, and the strongest disinfectant. And it had better take care of the job of cleaning its own house from top to bottom, and drive out every crook and gangster and racketeer we find. Because if we don't clean our own house, then the reactionaries will clean it for us. They won't use a broom. They'll use an axe. Unquote. In their attempts to work with Kennedy's inquiries, the labor movement entrenched itself further into democratic politics. Teamsters would lash out at the Democrats and vote overwhelmingly for Republican Richard Nixon in 1960. To return Teamster support, Barry Goldwater set about turning Walter Ruther into, quote, their Hoffa, unquote. He demanded to know about the violent tactics used during the Sheboygan-Collar manufacturing strike of 1954. During the two-month-long action, unionists were accused of physical intimidation and assaults against their replacements. Ruther was specifically accused of allowing violence to permeate on his watch. Ruther, for his part, deplored the violence and reassured the Goldwater committee he would never advocate for violence during a work dispute. Goldwater next produced the letter written by a youthful Ruther in 1934 when Ruther was touring Europe by bicycle. This letter was used by Goldwater to imply that Reuther wanted communism imported to America. This attempted sullying at Walter Reuther failed spectacularly, as Robert Kennedy gave Reuther the floor before the committee could adjourn. Conservatives were re-energized by these hearings nonetheless, and lawmakers would begin to crack down on the freedoms deemed too excessive for labor unions. One of its first devastating pieces of legislation was the Landrum-Griffin Act. This act further restricted things like picketing and boycotting, and it placed definite limits and checks on union leadership and the way in which unions were allowed to function. It was the sign of the start of a new chapter in American labor history. The workers had written, but now big business would revise. Their cuts additions, afterthoughts, and edits would be left for the workers to sort out. Change truly defined America's labor movement, and those changes, for better or worse, define America today. We are still dealing with the fallout from Kennedy's hearings and the effect they had on conservative American opinion. labor unions were now considered corrupt when previously... They were nearly unimpeachable on their moral high ground. The labor movement proved it was just as susceptible to the natural shocks and conditions of the world as any movement. And speaking of change, my sister is having a baby, and my brother is getting married. With these events occurring nearly simultaneously, I will not be able to premiere the sixth episode of this series in two weeks. We'll be back on October 3rd with the sixth installment, Death and Dishonor. Thank you all so much for listening. I'm your host, Joseph Pascone. Happy American Labor Day to all of you driving to or from work or listening as you do chores. Without you, the planet would not function. The great lie of the billionaire class is that they control the world. In reality, the worker controls everything, and they alone bring true vitality to this planet's economic life. Never forget that, and never forget that your voice counts.
0: If you like what you heard today, you can support us by donating on PayPal at Turning Tides Podcast One. Thanks for the support, and thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, we'd really appreciate it if you take the time to rate and review Turning Tides on whatever platform you use to listen and share the show on social media. It really helps us to bring the show to more listeners. Thank you guys so much. Thank you to everyone for listening. We'd also like to say thank you to Movo Photo. We use their sound equipment for this podcast as well as all of our other projects at Antics Entertainment. They make great equipment at great prices, and we really appreciate that they make content creating so accessible for indie creators like us. Check them out on social media at Movo Photo. M-O-V-O-P-H-O-T-O. Thank you again.